0: It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. Steve Bannerman is the CEO of a company called Real by Fake. And I want to talk to him about his journey with Foster Boy, which you heard in part one last week and which we're continuing here because it's a fascinating film. And there's some wonderful stories about post-production. I wanted to talk to Steve about that. How are you this morning, Steve?
1: Oh, I'm doing extremely well for Monday. Thank you. How are you?
0: (laughs) Have you had your coffee?
1: (laughs) I have. I've had multiple cups of coffee, so we'll go really fast.
0: (laughs) Good. I'm working on my second one, so I'll catch up to you in a minute. So I wanted you to tell us what is Real by Fake and a little bit about the story behind it. So, um, you know, I
1: actually started with a company called Local Hero that I bought about five years ago based in Santa Monica. And Local Hero was a company that was focused primarily on DI and finishing of independent feature films. And the company was growing rapidly um, and was gated by capacity. You know, it wasn't in a big enough building, was turning business away. So I bought the company and moved it into a bigger facility in Santa Monica. And we were pretty darn successful until the bottom fell out of the independent film market. And all of the folks that were making those movies moved over to TV. And as some of our clients grew into much bigger tentpole features, they kind of left us behind. And so I needed to make some sort of a transition. And, and the other thing that I started to notice was that DI was becoming more and more commoditized and more of the budget in those kind of projects were moving to visual effects. So, you know, I was sitting here with a DI house in independent features, and I needed to be in TV and visual effects, and it's pretty hard to do that organically. So we had an opportunity, we had a lucky break to work on season one of Big Little Lies with HBO, and we, we were working with a company out of Montreal called Real by Fake, and they needed a presence near HBO in Santa Monica where people could come into a wonderful boutique and do reviews on a big screen in a theater. And, you know, they fell in love with our facility. And I got to know Mark Cote, the CEO of Real by Fake in Montreal. And, you know, we started talking and then we worked together subsequently on Sharp Objects for HBO and worked very tightly there. We did the dailies for that and the editorial happened in our facility. And after that, Mark and I just decided, look, let's consummate a marriage here. And Real by Fake acquired the lion's share of local hero. And so we are now known as Real by Fake LA and Mark runs Real by Fake in Montreal. So Real by Fake has traditionally been primarily a visual effects company, although they also do post. So Mark needed a footprint in L.A., and I needed Montreal tax credit. Mark needed access to the independent feature market, which started to come back. I needed access to TV. So it was just a really beautiful marriage, and it's worked out very well since then.
0: It sounds perfect. Now, you mentioned Big Little Lies. Weren't there something like 1,400 VFX shots in that film? Am I remembering that right?
1: In that show, yeah, there were about 1,400, and there were about 2,500 in sharp objects. You know, when you work with Jean-Marc Allais, you sort of roll editorial, visual effects, and sound all at the same time. And so Jean-Marc likes to do things like take multiple shots from the same scene and stitch them together to create an actual shot that didn't, didn't exist in camera. So th- there's a lot of these kind of things that you do when you're working on a Jean-Marc Ballet project. And, and a lot of that happens in, in visual effects.
0: So what was your background before you started Local Hero? Where do you come from?
1: I spent 12 years at Apple. I was um, one of the folks that was on oh. the, the, the team that started QuickTime, uh, one of the early members of the QuickTime team. And so I, I got my taste of media and in the media and entertainment business um, working at Apple. And after I left Apple, I started a company called Castream, which was a QuickTime-based one-to-many streaming service that was acquired by Oracle. And, you know, I sort of worked my way through the industry and ended up buying Local Hero. They were one of my customers. I did a stint at Gen Arts, the folks that do the Sapphire plugins, that were acquired by Boris. And I also did a stint at Assimilate, the folks that make Scratch, running sales and marketing for both of those companies.
0: I think we've been circling around each other for years, and I'm just now putting it together.
1: I've been around for a long time.
0: Well, so have I. Yeah, so am I. All right. So you went from Apple, you had your journey, you started Local Hero, which now is real by fake, and we meet on this wonderful film called Foster Boy. Tell us about your involvement and what your company is doing or has done for that film.
1: We did a lot on that film. We did dailies. We did DI, we did visual effects, and we did the final mastering and delivery for the movie. We also worked very closely with the DP, Ben Kuprin, to do things like create the LUTs for the show and set the looks for the show. We designed the workflow Bible for the show. So we were pretty heavily involved from the minute that they were into pre-pro, picking lenses and cameras, all the way through the final delivery. And we're still doing final deliveries for this movie. It's a movie that just recently got distribution uh, they've been they've been in the f- in the Festival circuit for a long time, so we've been we've been doing some deliveries for them for a while.
0: How many versions did you have to create of that film in order to solve your distribution demands?
1: Well, you know, that's funny, you should bring that up, right? Because when they first started out in the festival circuit, it was the classic DCP type distribution, right? Where you're showing it on a big screen in a theater. And then when CoVID came along, everything turned virtual. And so at that point, some people are requesting different versions of ProRes. It's a 4K movie. You're doing 4K ProRes deliveries. Some people can't choke 4K, and so you know, there's a 2K ProRes. Some people are you know, requesting H.264s. It's all over the map these days. If the festivals are going to remain virtual for any length of time, I'm hoping that they're all going to start generating some consensus in what formats they want to start showing people.
0: I think that'll come. I think these last couple of years has taken the festival circuit a little bit by surprise, and they're all adapting. And I think the virtual the virtual method is here to stay, and some of us love it and others don't. But I, I really do think that's the future. Are you doing the titling or any of the captioning as well for this? Like, I, I don't know how many languages it's going to end up being recorded in.
1: We do things like titles and credits, but not subtitling and captioning. So opening titles and end credits and stuff like that we do.
0: Oh, well, you did just such a great job. We have so much to talk about. And I know that you're on a schedule. So I'm going to try to make this brief. But take this little media card from start to finish and take us on a journey with us starting out, of course, in the prep phase when you're deciding what you're going to shoot with and how you're going to shoot. So tell us about the cameras that you used and what formats you were on 4k. So tell us about the cameras that you're using.
1: Yeah, so again, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak for Ben Kufrin, the VP, and Yusuf Delara, the director, because those were the guys that actually sort of made these decisions. We were working with them uh, based on those decisions to create lots and stuff. But you know, if you if you look at this movie, it's got quite a a, a moody feel and it's a bit dark and it's 4K and they needed to, they wanted to shoot it in 4K and you have to cast your memory back. This movie was shot a couple years ago when there weren't that many 4K cameras to choose from. And since there was a, a sort of a, a lot of dark scenes in the movie, they wanted a 4K camera that responded really, really well in low light. So they basically used three cameras. The two A, a and B cameras were the Panasonic Vericam Pure cameras. And the C camera was a Panasonic EVA-1, which was uh, used for some stunt and driving scenes and some steady, uh, steady cam shots. The format that we shot was VRAW, 12-bit, uncompressed. And we use the Codex Pure recorders uh, to capture. If you look at the workflow, you're capturing to the recorder. We did the dailies in our facility. So the movie was shot between Los Angeles and Chicago. The movie's set in Chicago, and it was shot mostly in you know Chicago, but it, a lot of it was shot in LA. And part of the reason they shot a lot of it in LA was because a some of it was set in LA, but the movie was meant to be in this sort of fall time frame, the you know late fall time frame, but According to the schedule, they weren't able to get to Chicago to shoot until December. It was kind of weird. So they needed to do some shooting in LA, actually in Pasadena, and sort of make that feel and look like Chicago so that they could do it earlier in the year. So our daily pipeline in our facility in Santa Monica was built on Assimilate Scratch and Silverstack. And one of the reasons why we like Scratch is because the transcode speeds are really good. You know, we, we edited this movie in Adobe Premiere, so we created ProReses, and we also created H.264s that we put up on the web, on Frame.io, but also on iPads for the directors to take a look at.
0: What was the approval process on the film? So,
1: I mean, obviously, the Daily's approval process is, that's a discussion that goes on between the director and the DP, making sure that they got the shot. There was quite a bit of reshooting on this movie. This is a movie that was edited one time, then edited again. They did some pickup shots again at the end. An interesting way that this movie kind of morphed itself and grew itself into the the final product that it is today. So there was a lot of flexibility There was a lot of sort of coming in and doing reviews in our theater. We worked really, really closely with Yusuf and Ben to sort of perfect this movie. And I think it, it really paid off. I mean, it's a really great product.
0: It did. Now, you or I heard a story. I don't know if you told me or someone told me a story about literally shuttling the dailies to the editing suite. Yeah, this was an independent
1: film. It was a very small budget independent film. It's one of those kind of movies that often turns into the movies that we love the most. It was a very passionate project for Jay Daraton, you know, the writer and producer of the movie. So we had to work with a lot of budgetary constraints. And so I actually drove the editorial dailies to Andrew Drazik, the editor, from Santa Monica to Hollywood every day, you know, (laughs) to try and save the money for couriers. It was one of those kind of things where you have to be as resourceful as you can. And it was fantastic because I was able to establish a relationship with Andrew. And then we worked together again for a show uh, for Netflix called Black Summer. So Andrew and I became really good friends. It was, a, it was almost like doing a drug deal, you know? I would give him a call and say, I'm pulling up outside because there's no place to park in Hollywood. I'm pulling up outside and we would swap drives through the window of my car and then I'd drive back to Santa Monica. You know I mean? It was pretty funny.
0: I think anybody that can survive LA traffic twice a day, like coming and going every day, you win an award for that one and award season is just getting kicked off. So let's move into the visual effects. Talk to us about The visual effects and and perhaps pick a scene maybe it's the fire scene and what were the challenges with that and how did you make that happen so well
1: so this movie like a lot of movies these days has quite a few invisible visual effects you know a lot of cleanup work and and stuff like that but there were really two shots involving fire the first is at the very beginning of the movie which is an aerial shot it's a slow aerial shot that flies in over a barn that's burning and, you know, the shot comes to rest in front of a family that's standing there watching that barn burn. You know, most of it was done in compositing with practical elements. There wasn't any any CG or anything like that. So it was compositing practical fire elements and cards. And the challenge was really precisely positioning them in the correct 3D space. So and since the end result required us to fly through the smoke and flames, all those layers had to be laid out in 3D space so that we could capture the correct perspective and the changes in depth so we created pieces of this burned out barn structure under fire and then layered those different elements in and the shot was really long too and which is another thing that challenges you so you have to show the fire progressing it's not just like one or two seconds of fire you actually have to show the fire growing so we had to include a lot of small edge fires along the roof of the barn that sort of slowly eroded the structure away as the shot progressed and we had to add a lot of different interactive lighting elements and heat distortion elements and stuff like that to bring everything together so that it really had that sense of realism you know fire can be really challenging when you don't have a big vfx budget if you're not a terminator style film fire is uh, something that can be really challenging to get it to look real and i was really proud of michael curry our vfx supervisor and the work that he did you know on that movie
0: you know, if your team had not told me that this was a very low-budget film, I never would have realized it, given everything that went into it to make it just so beautiful and, and the actors in it. The film is really, really well done. So how hard is it in the time of COVID to keep your business going and find good people and work with them? How are you adjusting to all of that?
1: Well, you know, there's obviously some challenges. I mean, the biggest challenge is to find work. You know, the people thing in some respects is made a little bit easier by COVID. One of the challenges that we've had all along being in Santa Monica, especially with visual effects, is attracting really talented people to want to drive to the West Side. You know, those folks live in places like Silver Lake or they live in Hollywood or North Hollywood and they don't really want to commute. And so we basically have been able to set our entire team up to work remotely now. So instead of having a bullpen where you you know we have fifteen VFX seats in LA and eighty up in Montreal. And so instead of having everybody together in a VFX bullpen, we now have folks working remotely. So they don't have an hour or an hour and a half commute each direction every day. They're by definition a lot happier. Uh, And I can also attract folks that would just like say, no way, I'm not making that drive to work on projects with us since we can set them up remotely.
0: Well, you know, there was a time and I think it was around the time you were first setting the studio up in Santa Monica when Santa Monica was, quote unquote, the place to be. And everyone had started migrating there, but I guess it's hard to to buck the establishment, which has been on the other side of town for for so long. I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking of all of my times in post-production houses, surrounded by editing suites everywhere, and lunches, and coffees, and clients in and out, and... You know, you're working with your editor and I'm missing all of that. I think there's positive things to the lockdown in that we are getting a lot of work done and we're concentrating, but there's also that team and creative aspect of the post the post process, which I have the utmost respect for. How does it feel?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are certain parts of it that work better and certain parts that don't. And, you know, I think editorial is pretty challenging now. It's relatively straightforward to set editors up to work remotely And we use a technology called Teradici to set all of our folks up to work remotely. But the challenge is the, you know, the supervision, the client supervision of these uh, editorial sessions. You know, we use Evercast for the clients to be able to work in teams. In my mind, everybody's really struggling to get used to this new workflow. Editors are used to working a certain way. They have all of their keyboards and their shortcuts, and they have the the mouse, the the weird mouses that they like, and they have the weird monitors (laughs) that they like. And, you know, it's really straightforward to support those kind of things in a facility when you have 10 of them, you know, 10 editors and AEs. When they're all working remotely and some of this stuff doesn't work very well, some of these folks have um, constrained bandwidth and and yet they still have these expectations. It's like, well, if I can't have my environment crafted exactly the way I want it, then I'm not going to be able to be productive and I'm not going to be able to work very well. And everybody's having to get used to this new way of working. I think that over time, it'll get better and better and better. But that's a bit more challenging. I think the most challenging thing is doing color. We still really haven't found a great way to do color remotely. So we still do our color in person in our theater. Um, We're lucky. We have a really, really big theater. So it's easy to be spaced 20 feet apart. We limit the number of clients that can attend the session to two. And then we have a colorist and a producer. So there's a total of four people in the room. We have some very, very strenuous and stringent cleaning protocols and sanitizing protocols in between every session and things like that. But you're right. Gone are the days of massively stocked refrigerators and sushi chefs in the facility. And <laughs> that kind of thing. This doesn't happen. Yeah. Even for commercials, I mean, it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, you do what you need to do to get by and get it done.
0: Well, you read my mind. That was going to be my next question was about color. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at two very large monitors while I'm talking to you, and even though I have quote-unquote balanced them as best you can in a non-professional color facility, there's slight differences in the color in each monitor, and that's one thing that the client really needs to be there to approve the color. I love watching colorists work. It's like watching painting, you know, uh, watching somebody create a beautiful painting. And and talk to us a little bit about the color in the film, because you had some challenges and some reasons why I'm sure the color differed in certain sections of the film than it did in others. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, there there were really sort of three main looks to this movie. Most of the movies had a very cool gray look, the sort of outdoors in Chicago in the late fall kind of thing. A lot of the movie took place in a jail as well because of one of the, the main characters, Jamal, was a kid that grew up in the foster system and he ended up spending some time in jail. And the jail kind of carried forward that cool look. And then there was the courtroom scenes. A lot of the movie spent time in a courtroom. We wanted the courtroom to sort of again feel kind of dark and moody. You know, you had African American characters in the movie. Lewis Gossett Jr. was the judge Ben spent a lot of time um, shooting the, the, you know, the judge looking up, right, to sort of, you know, convey a little bit more power for the judge. But then you also had Matthew Modine and Evan Handler, whose skin tones couldn't be more opposite from Louis Gossett Jr. Right, you know, you wanted to maintain the drama and the darkness of the room, yet you still had to maintain the skin tones of the different actors that were in these scenes, and you had to carry those things and track them through. And so it created some challenges there. And then there were also these scenes where you were outdoors, like, for instance, you know, where Jamal finds a new family, right? And the new family really, really loves him. And so you want the warmth of that environment to be conveyed in their house and outside in their yard and things like that. And so, you know, you have a completely different look and feel there. And then the third uh, environment is a flashback where Jamal flashes back to his past where he was things like you know, raped and abused and stuff like that, even in his new family, where you know there was another foster child in the same family at the same time that was abusing him unbeknownst to his new parents. And so, you know, you had the defocus and the blurs and things like that that convey the flashback scene. So it was a real challenge to sort of create a continuity that wove a common thread all the way through this movie when you had moods changing so dramatically. And so Toby Martius was the colorist for this movie. I think he did a fantastic job. He did a very good job.
0: He did. I was watching the film and I was watching the scenes in the courtroom where Shane and Matthew were standing next to each other. Uh-huh. And I was thinking that was a challenge to have somebody with very pale skin standing next to somebody with this very dark, beautiful chocolate kind of color skin. And uh, for a colorist, that's a bit of a challenge, I would think, to make that look right. Also for the DP. <laughs>
1: Again, yeah, you don't have a huge budget. This movie didn't get an opportunity to spend six weeks in color. This movie was in color for 10 days. So, Ben had to do a lot in camera with lighting and stuff like that. And he's really a genius. He did an amazing job.
0: Well, you have an unbelievable team, and the dedication to this film is visible in the results. And, like you said, you're still working on some aspects of it. I wish you well, I'm, I'm not going to say the other phrase, I'm going to say break a leg with it. <laughs> There's a lot of people rooting for you. Is there anything else about your process with the film I didn't ask you that you might want to bring to our attention while I have a moment with you?
1: Well, I mean, I think the one thing that helped this movie with meet its budgetary goals and its creative goals at the same time was to design a true end-to-end process where if we're the ones that are processing the dailies, then we can be sure that we can online and conform the movie very efficiently And when we do that, we know that pulling visual effects plates is going to go a lot more smoothly when we have visual effects and DI, right? Working together and simultaneously in concert, we know that process can be a lot smoother and a lot more efficient, and you can do a lot more in the time that you have so that you don't waste time sending things back and forth from different companies. And so that sort of true end-to-end workflow design in a boutique facility is something that Filmmakers like Jay and Yusuf and Ben really, really benefit from and really get a lot out of because you get a lot more bang for your buck and a lot better product for your constraint
0: budget. Absolutely. So first of all, go into something that you really feel for, that you have a big heart for, plan, organize, and make sure that you deliver and you work really hard. It's a formula for success. It's been so nice talking to you. That was Steve Bannerman, the CEO of Real by Fake in L.A. We're saying hello to your partner, Mark Coté in (laughs) Montreal. And uh, look for Foster Boy in the theaters. And uh, where else can we see the movie right now?
1: It's still making its way on a tour of drive-in theaters around the country, funnily enough. But it's available on iTunes. You can rent it on iTunes. It's an amazing movie. Go see it.
0: I encourage everybody to take a look at it. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to let you get back to your very busy day in L.A. and wish you all the best. Thanks for this.
1: All right, Serena. Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it.
0: Everybody listening in, remember what I always tell you, get up off that chair and go do something wonderful today. This is Serena Catania saying bye for now.